Well, I want to extend my uh, welcome to you as well. Good morning to you all. Thanks for uh, braving this morning. We've already heard uh, stories of people with batteries, dead batteries, and uh, frozen car doors. Uh, maybe your door into your house was frozen. Um, but we're glad you made your way out today. If you're new, um, especially welcome. Like that's a that's a huge thing to decide to go visit a church on a day like today. So, uh, welcome. My name is Bland, and I am the lead pastor here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you already, I'll be at the um, welcome table outside um, across the hall after the service. Would love to say hi, and we'll give you a free book if you say hi to me. So. Um, well, we're, we're going to be in the book of Ephesians today, so if you have your Bible, you can flip there or your app. Uh, you can look that up. Sometimes I get the question, how, um, how does your church you know, approach teaching the Bible? Um, and there's a lot of different ways that churches do that. If you look at um, some churches, the pastors will, will take uh, a, a, a topic and then sort of fill it out with a bunch of different verses from different places in the Bible uh, and then preach that sermon. And then other times they'll just give, have like one short verse on a topic and then they just use that for the whole message. Uh, what we typically do is dive into one passage, usually more than one verse, usually like three or four or 10 or 15 verses. And then we walk through that and we, uh, it's called expository preaching. We try to exposit or expose the meaning of the text uh, so that we can better understand it and apply it. A lot of times we'll do that um, through going through books of the Bible, uh, like we're doing with Ephesians. Sometimes we'll do it in a topical series, but where we take like five or six different uh, texts out of the Bible and do five or six sermons on those texts. Uh, so every week you should come here expecting to uh, open your Bible, be able to follow along and be able to answer the questions, why should I believe that? Like, where is he getting that from? Um, and be able to see in God's word where that comes from. Second Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we believe the Bible is actually breathed out by God, that God inspired the scripture to be written in the way that it was written um, in the time that it was written. It doesn't mean that, you know, he took, uh, took the author's hands and mechanically wrote words out on a piece of paper, but through their personality, through their experience, he got written exactly what he wanted to be written. Um, and, but the Bible is not some mystical, you know, book where we, we just sort of like go discover our own meaning, right? Um, I don't know if you've, you've ever done that in your life or heard of somebody doing that, but you know, just sort of like flipping through the Bible and then just like reading a verse and and your idea is like, God's got something to say to me through that. Uh, and the problem is we ask, what does that mean to me? Rather than, uh, the very important question is what did it mean in its first place? So we use what's called a grammatical historical approach to scripture. We look at it in its, as literature written to a particular people in a particular time in a particular place. Yes, inspired by God, but inspired to be written at a certain time to a certain people in a certain place. We, we try to understand that. We try to understand in its context what it meant because the Bible only means one thing. Verses only mean one thing. But then we, from that, we can make sure that we're applying it faithfully. We're not ripping verses out of context. I'll give you an example of this one of my favorite uh, that, that I can, that I use. Like literally, the Bi- I don't know if you're aware of this, the Bible says, and I quote, there is no God. I don't know if you know that. There's, 
There's a place in the Bible that actually says that there is no God. So just that's a verse ripped out of context, right? Because right before it, it says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Right? So that's just an example of what happens when we pull, that's an extreme example, but we can get off track when we pull verses out of their context and try to make them, oh, what does it mean for me versus what did it mean, what does it mean, what God breathed it, intended it to mean, and then how do I apply it to my life, which can be all kinds of different ways, right? That's the beauty of scripture. What we're doing with Ephesians is walking through the book of Ephesians um, as one of the 66 books of the Bible, one of the 27 books in the New Testament or the, the, the new story of, of from Jesus' birth through the early church. Um, and this is written, you have to ask, what, what kind of book is it? Well, it's a letter. It's written like a first century letter from a Jewish a Christian, Paul, to a, a church in the Roman city of Ephesus, which was mostly not Jewish. So Paul was writing to a particular church in a particular place. And what we're doing is, as we walk through that is digging into it, trying to understand it, and then applying it to ourselves uh, today. If, you are, if you're new, uh, new to Christianity, new to the Bible, don't be intimidated by this. Listen, no one was born with Bible knowledge. Right? I don't care how much, how fast that person next to you flipped to Ephesians 5. And you're like, oh my gosh, I couldn't even get my Bible open or my app open and they had it. Right? And you're like, I don't even, what is Ephesians? Uh, and, and no one's born with that. It's something we gain over time. And there are great resources. Actually, I would argue we live in one of the most amazing times in human history if you want to know about the Bible and you don't want to have to go to seminary uh, or go sit down with me. Um, there's an incredible resource called the ESV Study Bible, which is a great resource, um, but um, that you can uh, order on Amazon. It comes, it has backgrounds for like Ephesians. It has like a couple of pages of who wrote Ephesians? What was the church like? What are the themes and the ideas around this book? And so then when you read it, you understand. And then underneath each, the text itself, the Bible, are some notes to help you to make sense of that. So um, as, as we've seen already in just our study of Ephesians, half of the letter was written as, as theology, right? Doctrine. And it's deep doctrine, right? If you go back to chapter one, it's deep. It's like the, you know, big, uh, epic, like huge language about the greatness of God and the salvation that he has brought us. And then the second part of Ephesians is application, where Paul takes, because of that, let's do this. And that's what we've been looking at the last few weeks. God cares how we act in this world because of the the gospel. And so he cares if we lie to each other. He cares if we lash out at each other in anger. He cares uh, whether we're living in sexual immorality. He cares whether we walk in the light and expose deeds of darkness. Today's uh, passage, though, in Ephesians 5, 15 through 21, is a, is a, is a pivotal passage. So it, it's the last of Paul's summary statements where he uses walk. Five times in the last about chapter, chapter and a half, he's used the word walk, the way you walk, the way you walk in this world with God. This is the last one. And then it also sets the groundwork, lays the groundwork for um, the instructions he's going to give following this on marriage, family, work, spiritual warfare, and mission. So this passage is a summary of what's come up to this point and then looking forward. So I'm going to read Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. 
ask you to follow along with me. When I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And I invite you, just as an affirmation, to say, thanks be to God with me. Paul says, verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. There's that word. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So because of the gospel, because of chapters one through three, the church then, and what God's done for us, not what we've done, but what God has done for us, the church is then a billboard to the world. We're a billboard to the world of who God is and what he's done through Jesus. So therefore he cares. He cares, not just um, because we're a billboard, but because he wants us to live lives, flourishing lives, full lives in this world. Um, and so the, the big idea for us uh, today is simply this, is your life is for God, so walk wisely in the Spirit. Your life is for God, so walk wisely in the Spirit. <clears throat> so he begins, he says, look carefully then how you walk. Look carefully, diligently, intentionally, looking at how you walk. We aren't to coast, we're not to go along. Um, we are, we are to, to stop and, and, and be introspective and and retrospective, looking backwards, of things that we've done wrong and how we've lived our lives. Uh, we need to know where we are in our spiritual journey. We need to know what God's purpose is for us and the where we're living our lives today. He says, not as unwise, but wise. I don't know if you realize this. The way he says this, it's actually possible for you to live an unwise life and be a Christian. You're not going to experience flourishing the way Jesus wants for you. You're not going to be effective in in telling anyone else or showing anyone else what Jesus is like. And you're going to suffer. I would argue suffer unnecessarily because you're choosing to not live wisely in this world. Now, the wisdom is a has a deep biblical history. The the word wisdom here is actually um, uh, the word sophoi in the Greek, where we get Sophia from. Maybe you have a friend named Sophia, right? Um, And you're like thinking, well, she's not so wise. Um, Well, maybe it's just ironic, like the name Bland is ironic. but the word Sophie or Sophie means wise. Um, and, and he's saying here that, that wisdom, we need to be wise versus unwise, the contrasting here. Now, I, I know how we think you're, especially in this city, we are very, uh, Boston tends to be intellectual, informational, right? Knowledge based. That's not what he's talking about. Knowledge is not wisdom, knowledge is information. And you can have information and not act on it, right? You can have insight, you can have knowledge of the universe, and it not affect the way you live your life at all. Wisdom is very different. Wisdom is insight for life. It's knowledge in action. Wendy Alsop says, it is skill in the art of gospel living. Tony Evans says, true wisdom is gaining God's perspective through his word and then applying that truth to life. 
Until you can walk the talk, you have not gained wisdom. I love that. He said, you, no matter how much you've learned, no matter how much you may even study scripture uh, and, and, and know of the Bible and know of God and know good theology, until it's affecting the way that you live, you are not actually living wisely in this world. You have not gained wisdom. This is why we, one of the reasons we study God's word. It's not even chapters one through three in understanding the gospel and that blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who's, who's blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing, right? These, this, this grandiose language is not meant to be, oh, that is so interesting. That's fascinating. Yes, it's fascinating, but it's also meant to affect how I live my life. It's meant to affect how I go to work. It's meant to affect my relationships, and we talked, that's one of the things that I hopefully did well through those first three chapters is try to help you to understand how even doctrine helps us to live and live wisely in this world. So let's walk through three ways that Paul says we're to live wisely. And actually, these are this, this passage, as you diagram it, as I like broke it out and began to really diagram it, it's, it's three commands and then a bunch of participles at the end, which are action verbs. So we'll, uh, and they're all modifying the last command. So three commands. And the first one is we're to live, we, that we live wisely when we leverage our time for Christ. We live wisely when we leverage our time for Christ. So he says... Kind of a weird phrase, making the best use of your time. This is, this is where the English translation does not capture it well. Some translations, yours might say, it actually says redeem the time. And that's a better connection with what the original language, the word that's used there. Because the word is, has, has a connotation, a commercial association of buying up something. So in this case, the commodity is time, and you and I are buying up time by making use of these opportunities. This word is, the word, uh, biblical word is translated in Galatians 3 is redeemed. And so redeeming means to buy back, right? So God redeemed his people out of Egypt under Pharaoh. You and I live now to redeem time. We redeem time because the days are evil. Now, again, I want to, this is... This is not to disparage English translations. Our translations are amazing. We have excellent translations. But sometimes there's two words in the original language and only one word in English. And this is one of those times, the word time. Uh, in the original language, there's chronos, right? Which is where we get our word chronological from, meaning the passage of time, an orderly time, moment by moment, chronological, in order. Then there is kairos, which is more, more of a, the idea of, of, of timely, right? So when we'd say, uh, boy, it was her time to shine, we weren't thinking chronologically. It was, oh, the time has arrived for her to shine. No, it is meaning it's an opportune moment. It is her opportunity to shine. So we use that word in that connotation. They just had two words to, to, to use those. In this context, it's the word kairos. He's saying, make the most of every opportunity. You and I are given time, which means we walk along. Think of it as a commodity, if you will. We get 24 hours a day. Roughly sleep seven or eight of those, and we've got, but we've got money, and that's time. And we come along, and we see an opportunity, and we shell out that money. We shell out the time to buy that time as an opportunity for God's glory in our life. This is the opposite of someone who's living unintentionally. This is the opposite of someone who's going with the flow. 
A wise person is a discerning person. A wise person is someone who sees the relationships that God has given them at work, in their home, in their neighborhood, and, 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 and the context and opportunities with people. They're aware of spiritual dynamics around them, of what, what God's doing around them, what, how God might be opening a door in some way. They're thinking about their job strategically, not in terms of just like, get ahead, get ahead, but like actually thinking about it as an opportunity for the kingdom. That's what it looks like practically. Galatians 6.10 uses the same word. It says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I think the question for you and I today is to ask, just real honestly, are you redeeming your time? Would you say that you are making the most of the opportunities God is giving you in your life? That's the first way we live wisely. And by the way, all three of these are super connected. Well, we live wisely by making the best use of our time, but we also live wisely when we seek God's will intentionally. So it's not just opportunities, but just overall. And why is that? It's because there's really no neutral days. There are no neutral days. Paul tells us here, because the days are evil. The way this is written and the word therefore right at the beginning of the next verse points to the idea that this phrase is meant to bridge. It's meant to uh, make every opportunity, right? Uh, Redeem the time because the days are evil, but also therefore know what the will of the Lord is. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is an important truth here. If the days are evil, there's no neutral days, if the world that we are in, the context we're in is evil, and I, and I hope I don't have to convince all of us th- of that, if not, I will give you an assignment. Go home and watch the news. Because 95% of it will be about evil in the world. We see everything from violence to uh, greed, corruption, injustice, racism, abuse, uh, even now rumors of wars, Right? Like, it's out there. We're in an evil context. And we tend to think that's out there, but we face it every day as well. Listen, it is, we have to understand evil is, evil is not just um, actively doing something that's against God's will or hurting someone else, right? It is also not doing what God wants us to do. Right, the 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 uh, old saying of the only thing only thing needed for injustice to reign is for good good men and women to not do anything, right? Like, like the idea is that you and I, we can't just pop it and pop our car into neutral and coast. Days are evil, which means we are constantly being pulled. The context around us is constantly being pulled, being affected by evil. So we have an opportunity. Don't be foolish. Don't, don't live in that context. Wake up. Live wisely, understanding what the will of the Lord is here. I used to, I remember when I came to faith in college, probably that was a, that was the big question my roommate and I used to ask each other all the time. And we kept asking like professors and uh, pastors and leaders were like, how do you know what the will of God is for your life? Right? How do you know what God's will is for you? 
Um, and I think it's because we were looking for, for something super clear, like you will do this and then this will happen and then this will happen. But that's not, that's not the will of God for finite people, right? We are meant to live in the space of time, not necessarily know where we're going to be a year from now, five years from now, or ten years from now. What, what you look in scripture, and you can see God's world wrapped up with the idea of what I would say is purpose and rhythms. Purpose and rhythms. Many of us think of our purpose as simply being productive. But what if God is more interested in, uh, is less interested in how much we can get done for him and more interested in how much we actually walk with him in this world? My, favorite, my life verse really is Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, which talks about the will of God here. Paul, Paul summarizes really a lot of ethical teaching from Scripture here. He goes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, so pause right there. The entire Christian life can be summed up in worship. That's your purpose. Your purpose is to glorify God by exalting Jesus as you live in this world. You can exalt Jesus through your suffering. You can exalt Jesus on your great days. You can exalt Jesus through hurt relationships. You can exalt Jesus during a tough job. So there's no limit there. So we, 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 and, and it's worship. Then verse two, do not be conformed to this world, which we just read was evil, right? Like this, the days are evil, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So it's an ongoing act by And then by testing, you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So you want to know what the will of God is? The will of God is for you to walk with him every day. And as you do that, you'll figure out the will of God, (laughs) right? You'll figure out the will of God in relation to your work. You'll figure out the will of God in relation to your family. You'll figure out the will of God in relation to your purpose, Do you see how productivity, it, it's not a bad thing, but it's, a, it's not a purpose. It can't be. Paul says your life is to be offered to God as a living sacrifice of worship. Worship can't be about productivity, can it? Now, I want to I uh, encourage, I've suggested several books recently, and I wanted to suggest this one to you, especially if you tend to be a workaholic. Uh, or you struggle to get things done. You're like, I don't have that issue. I'm just not productive. I, I can't find my phone half the time, you know, or my inbox. I just keep closing out emails and opening a new email account because my inbox is so big. I'm like, I don't know how to handle that. I'm just going to get a new email. I know you people because you keep sending me those new email addresses. You're like, don't reach me at this anymore. Reach me at this. And I'm like, that sounds a lot like your old one. You've had 14 Gmail addresses. Something's happening here. Um, but Tim Challies uh, wrote a book called, it's not a big book, so if you're not super productive, don't worry about it. It's a very small book. It's called Do, Do More Better, A Practical Guide to Productivity. Listen to how he frames out productivity in the Christian life for us. He goes, you do not exist in the world to get things done. You exist to glorify God by doing good to others. The simple fact is you are not the point of your life. You are not the star of your show. If you live for yourself, your own comfort, your own glory, your own fame, you will miss out on your very purpose. God created you to bring glory to him. Finally, productivity is effectively stewarding your gifts, talents, time, energy, and enthusiasm for the good of others and the glory of God. So making sure that you are living for the right purpose 
is how you, how you know and live out the will of God in your life. And then the other thing I mentioned in relation to that is healthy rhythms. Work, rest, relationships, family, play. All of those things are healthy rhythms and parts of life. And one area that deserves some attention for us in our context, I would argue, is the hours that we work. Right? The average, uh, a recent Gallup poll showed that the average American works 47 hours a week. That is one, basically an extra day. We're working one extra day a week and, uh, for our jobs. I realize some of you uh, don't have a choice right now. Turns out most hospitals, uh, you know, don't think about these things with medical residents. I think they're on the other side. If I think we could get 300 hours out of them this week, you know, it's like, I, I know it's tough. A first year law students, you know, I think one out of three of them die or something. It's like, you know, they, I totally get that, that where you are and what you're being called to might require you to be insane right now. Like I, like, you know, you can't sustain this. You're at this point and you're like, I can't do this my whole life. I got to do this for a year. I got to do this for two years, three years. That's understandable. Okay, God, I would argue if that's you though, you got to be super intentional with your time off. You need to not just, whoo, not working. You need to think about resting well, unplugging, like being a healthy person as much as you can. But if you are 10 years into your career, 15 years into your career, and you are still donating that extra day a week to your job, like, and, and it's not a period of time, it's just what you do, you've got to stop and ask yourself, why am I doing this? Is this God's will for me to make the best use of my time? Now, if it's a project, if you're working on a special promotion that you feel like God's really called you toward, okay, I get that. But, you, but, but do it intentionally. Don't do it just because, well, this is what I want to do. And for, God, for Christ's sake, don't do it because you don't know anything else to do. Right? I, I was raised by uh, a, a father who, um, during, during World War II, seven years old, his dad died. Uh, they were already poor. My, parent, my grandmother raised four kids in poverty in the 1940s uh, in rural Virginia. Um, and my dad started working on his uncle's chicken farm at 11 years old, dug ditches, dug septic tanks. Like he's, He worked hard from a very young age. He instilled that into me. But it's interesting. It wasn't until he got close to retirement, after he retired, he realized how unhealthy he had gotten in his work habits. That like he just he just would work. It, it, he didn't know anything else, right? And and he he actually came back to apologize to me. He said, "I realize I've neglected you along the way over the years." Now I didn't feel neglected. I had a great dad who loved me. But there were times where he he just worked. And I think that we need to be aware of that, not just because of the family and friends, but, 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 God, but we're robbing ourselves of opportunities to be effective for the kingdom. We're robbing ourselves of opportunities to be generous and hospitable to others. And, and you know what happens? Not only do you lose the seven, eight, ten hours you work extra, that takes something from you so when you are off, you don't have anything. Now, I know it got real quiet in here. <laughs> So I'm, I, I say this to myself as well. Like, I, I realize this. Sometimes I can just put my head down and just keep going, right? But God wants us to be intentional in understanding his will. So evaluate your life. Evaluate. Are you really seeking first the kingdom of God? Because that's what it means to live wisely. And I don't want you. 
I don't want you, I don't want it for me either, to get to a point in my life where I kind of look back and go, wow, yeah, I worked a lot of long extra hours that really cost my, my ability to rest well, my ability to love others well, my ability to serve my neighbors well, ability to be hospita- hospitable well. So finally here then, we live wisely when we're in spirit-filled community. So these are all interconnected, redeeming the time, knowing the will of God, and then living in spirit-filled community. Verse 18 is the final command comparison. If you didn't notice it, each command has a comparison. Don't be like this. Do this. Don't be like that. Do this. So he says, verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. Debauchery is just a a word that's not a good English, there's no good English, that's an old English word, but it's a, not a good English translation word. Uh, but it just means kind of wasteful, like, like, like purposeless, like useless. Getting drunk is like use, becomes useless time, but be filled with the spirit. So he's contrasted being drunk with being filled with the spirit. Dr- being drunk affects you in one way, right? It affects the, the way the th- you think, the way that you act, the way you interact with other people. Being in the spirit does the same thing. It affects the way you act, the way you think, and the way you interact with other people. Paul's not condemning drinking. I used to think this. Uh, I'll be honest, I actually came... Uh, I, I did all of my drinking in high school. Uh, <laughs> Got saved my freshman year in college. I did the exact opposite of about 90% of my friends in high school who were good, pretty good in high school and then went in college and went off the deep end. I, I stopped drinking when I went to college. Uh, started following Jesus and actually didn't, uh, didn't drink until about 10 years ago. Um, so uh, what I realized, what I did though, is beca- I became legalistic. I kind of used a few verses here and there and like, oh, I just want to stay away from it. But when you look at scripture, What's condemned in Scripture is drunkenness, not drinking. In fact, throughout Scripture, wine and, and is associated with feasting and festivals and rejoicing. It's actually a sign of God's blessing. But I would argue Christians in particular need to be very careful of how we use alcohol. I'm, I'm all for good wine and, and good beer. Enjoy. I, I love the whole craft brew scenery. Um, I, but... I would argue we need to be careful about it, that it doesn't have an inordinate place in our lives, a, 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 an unhealthy place in our life. If you can't go like a week without drinking or two weeks without drinking or a month without drinking, then you probably have an issue. Um, and so I challenge you. So the, what he contrasts here is, or what he's, he's talking about is that um, Having too much to drink affects the way you think, feel. It masks reality and disconnects you from real life. And the Holy Spirit, on the other hand, helps us to live in the real world. Um, getting, you can hear these contrasts this way. Getting drunk gets rid of worry by helping you forget, which is why people get drunk, right? They, they get drunk because you kind of forget. It numbs you. The Spirit gets rid of worry by helping you remember. Helping you remember who God is and what he's done for you. Getting drunk gives you courage liquid courage, right? By making you unaware of your surroundings and dangers even. Uh, But the Spirit gives you courage by showing you how much bigger God is than your fears. Getting drunk adds excitement to your life by giving you a temporary thrill. The Spirit adds excitement to your life by reminding you of the overflowing grace of God towards you. So Paul, Paul says to be filled with the Spirit. This is an invitation. The do you, I don't know if you, uh, 
you, it, you notice this or not, but to be filled is a passive verb. You can't, you can't fill yourself, right? He says, be filled with the Spirit. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's like somebody come up to you saying, be happy. I, well, I, uh, oh, okay, you know, like you, it's, it, you can't internally just make yourself happy in a moment. It is something that happens to you. And so what, do you, what we don't think about this verse as is, is an invitation. It's, an in, it's a command, but it's a command that comes with an invitation. He says, be filled with the Spirit, which means there is opportunity to experience that, to be filled. In his book, uh, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves uh, Reeves uh, describes the, the, the invitation this way. He says, the Christian life is about so much more than getting heaven. The Spirit is about drawing us into the divine life. The Father has eternally delighting, uh, eternally delighting in the Son through the Spirit and the Son in the Father. And the Spirit's work in giving us new life then is nothing less than bringing us to share in their mutual delight. The best way to reflect the joy of who God is with other people is to delight in God yourself. When you're filled with the Spirit, something happens to you. It begins to change who you are and it spills over. So as you delight in God, as you, as there's this invitation to be filled and to experience the delight of, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, then it spills over. And this is what Paul's talking about here. It's this overflow horizontally. Which is why this passage is about community. The whole book is written to a church, not to a bunch of individuals, but to a local church just like City on a Hill. And he's saying that you are invited into a community. And, he, and then he, he pours out all of these um, participles, which are the action verbs. And these aren't, he, these aren't com- I would argue, these aren't commands as much as results. Results of being filled with the Spirit. Look at what he says. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. These are all meant to be in the body, in the church. When the Spirit fills us, it spills out over us. And there's something supernatural and beautiful when the church is filled with the Spirit. And I would argue, and I'm, I'm not an exclusivist on this, but there's something Paul's pointing to here that happens with music. It's interesting, as we, we've studied uh, cultures around the world, every culture we've discovered has some form of music. It's like it's written into the human soul. Martin Luther actually said that second to doctrine itself, it's meant by God to communicate truth to us. And one of the beautiful things about singing is that uh, it engages a different part of our minds and connects us and our hearts in a deeper way than sometimes a sermon or a prayer can. <clears throat> Some of the, most sweet, the sweetest, most powerful moments I've ever had of encountering God have been during songs. Which is why, by the way, we're doing next Friday night. Because this service, while it's, it's good and we try to incorporate a lot of things, it, there's not as much freedom of going like, hey, just relax, take off when you want to. Like we, and, and, and so we, we can't incorporate as many songs as we enjoy. The first half of Ephesians reaches its conclusion with one of the most beautiful prayers in the Bible, and, it, and, and it's rooted in the, what the Spirit does. Listen to what Paul says in chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason... 
I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So there's that filling of the spirit, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. There's that horizontal connection. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God what would this is a very simple question what would it be like if God did that right now to us if we actually were filled in this way and it began and and we began to experience the love of God and have the strength to comprehend the the height and depth and breadth and of the love of God what would that do to us Well, I'm pretty sure that when the band comes up to lead us in our next song, there wouldn't be many of you going. There'd be something happening, right? There, we, we all know that. And so I think it's worth stopping and praying for. That this isn't a thing in the Christian life. This is the thing. Everything is rooted in this. If you get God, you live with God, you walk with God, you're filled with his spirit, you're delighting in God and it's spilling it over to people around you. Do you think you'll live for the will of God? Do you think you'll make the most of every opportunity? Of course you will. Because you're experiencing God. So I'm just going to stop and pray right now for this. God, you command us right here in this passage, be filled with the Spirit. So we ask you, Father, we can't do it. We can't manufacture it. We can't will ourselves into it. All we can do is invite you right now. And so I invite every person in this room, just take 10 seconds to yourself to pray and ask the Spirit to fill you. and powerful happens when the Spirit fills us. I cannot tell you how many times I have started singing a song, not because I felt like it, but just as an act of faith. And by the end of that song, by the end of another song or two or three songs, all I can say is my circumstances didn't change at all, but I did. There was something that changed in me. When the Spirit fills us in our worship, it changes us. And it impacts others. Listen to this. Anne Lamott was an author. She was an uh, outspoken atheist. Did not believe in Christianity. Thought it was all ridiculous. She uh, was attracted to the gospel music of a local church. And uh, before she could sit through a sermon, the music... uh, began to speak to her. And this is what she said would happen when she'd hear the music. She said, something inside me that was stiff and rotting would feel soft and tender. Somehow the singing wore down all the boundaries that kept me so isolated. Sitting there and then standing with them to sing, sometimes so spiritually aching and sick that I felt like I might tip over, I began to feel bigger than myself. As I sang God's praises, I began to feel bigger than myself, like I was being taken care of. 
It, it was almost like I was being tricked into coming back into life. God was tricking me through the music. God has made you to live in this world, but we are called to walk carefully, wisely in, uh, in his will, in the spirit. So we're going to move into our time of response and we're going to sing. We're going to sing because that's what we're called to do in this passage. But we're also going to take communion. And communion is that great reminder of the invitation. That's what I, I want you to think of it that way it's today. If you're a Christian, uh, communion uh, is an invitation. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, giving thanks. And he took the cup and he poured it out. He gave it to each of the disciples, giving thanks, saying, this is the covenant, new covenant in my blood for you. This is the invitation to come into the Trinity, to delight in the Trinity. It's insane that the God of the universe, the God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit would invite me and you to delight and to know know him. But that's exactly what he does. So anytime over this next song, if you're a Christian, you can slip out uh, through these side doors. Uh, we have to take communion outside because of our out, uh, outside of this room for the sake of um, respecting this space. They uh, don't allow us to have food or drink in here. But if you're not a Christian today, you're not sure where you stand with God with this invitation. Maybe he's speaking to you today. We want to help you in that journey. So I'll, I'll be in the back, but uh, you can also mark on your connection card. But we'd ask you to not take communion at this time. That is an act for the church. But today, pray, sing. Maybe maybe your experience is going to be like Anne Lamott's, where you're just going to kind of sing yourself into faith. And God's going to speak to you that way, way better than my sermon did. Let's go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray, and then we can respond together. Father, we sing here in just a moment, not simply because you've commanded us to, but because it is our delight. It's our delight to honor you. It is our delight to sing to each other, to encourage faith in each other. And all of this is possible because you have died and risen for us. And as we take the bread and take the cup, we want to remember that, Lord, the the invitation to know you in this world, to be filled by you in this world, to walk in this world wisely, delighting in you. Help us today. We are, our hands are open, our hearts are open, our minds are open. Speak, fill us, and change us today. In your name we pray. Amen.